So team, if you are interested in knowing more about female nutrition, more about female athlete nutrition and the state of the research, but importantly, what it means practically for you as an athlete, for you as just living an optimal sort of lifestyle, Holistic Performance Institute offers two courses on that and both of them have been created by me and they are current and relevant to where the research lies. And we look at lifestyle, we look at nutrition, we look at menstrual cycle, we look at perimenopause and menopause and some diet and lifestyle information that can help enhance your health, but also your performance. And right now, when you use the code Mickey, M-I-K-K-I, you get 20% off the bundle. So both nutrition for women's health and performance. So we will pop that link in the show notes and you can go and upskill yourself. Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hello, Wikipedians. That's what I've decided to call you because you're listening to Wikipedia. And this is Mickey, and this week on the podcast, I speak to fan favourite Dr. Cliff Harvey, and we talk about a host of things, as I'm sure you would already have guessed, given how often Cliff has been on the show and how diverse our conversations can get. However, the purpose of this particular show is to talk about female athlete nutrition, female nutrition in general, and that there is no one-size-fits-all approach and nuance matters. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Cliff, Cliff Harvey, PhD, is New Zealand's expert on the effects of a ketogenic diet in a healthy population, but he is so much more than that. He has been helping people to live healthier, happier lives and to perform better since starting in clinical practice in the late 1990s. Over this time, he has been privileged to work with many Olympic professional Commonwealth and other high-performing athletes. He has also worked with many people to overcome the effects of chronic and debilitating health conditions. Along the way, he has founded or co-founded many successful businesses in the health, fitness and wellness space, including the Nutrition Store Online, which is now Thera Store, and Holistic Performance Institute, New Zealand's leading certification and diploma for health, nutrition, health coaching and performance that has many of the world experts teaching on the course so students are learning from the best. Cliff has over 20 years experience as a strength and nutrition coach and in addition to his PhD research he's a registered clinical nutritionist, qualified naturopath and holds a diploma in fitness training and health coaching and patient care. So you can find Cliff over at cliffharvey.com and also over at holisticperformanceinstitute.com. Before we crack on into it, I would just like to remind you that the best way for you to support this podcast is to hit subscribe or like on your favorite podcast platform. And if there's space, leave a five-star review. That would be amazing, and more people will have access to the information that my expert guests 
share with you and with me on Wikipedia. All right, team, please enjoy the conversation that I have with Dr. Cliff Harvey. We say words and we, we, they have the wrong meaning, but we still get it. Like when people yeah. say, I'm, I made a concerted effort, that's not really correct because to have a concerted effort involves more than one person. Does it? Because you have to be working in, in concert. Ah. Yeah. Or another cool one is to peruse something. You kind of think, oh, I'll quickly look over it. But peruse actually means an in-depth um, reading of something. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I don't know that I've ever thought about that, actually. Like we were talking about the accent. I don't know if I've ever actually given that much thought before. These are the things that keep me up at night, Mickey. <laughs> it's because you're such a scholar, <laughs> Dr. Cliff Harvey. I just like I just like to be correct, you know. Yeah. I don't like things being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very limiting way to think because there's oh, no yes. there's no real there's no truth, is there out there? Well the oh, truth no, is I'm out gonna, there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna the truth going, is out there. <laughs> Well, apparently, yeah. Having, you know, um, on that note, David Duchovny is a very good writer. Okay. Yes. I've read now, I think, four of his novels. Have you? They're really good. He was here last month for the Auckland Writers Festival, did you know? Yeah, you know, I stayed at my place. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> actually, that could have, did you see? I actually thought that that could have been correct. I mean, you have contacts. But um, it's possible, yeah. Yeah. However, hilariously, they advertised him being here in Auckland, and I looked at the paper, and the picture of him was the picture of him back in the nineties when I was in love with him <laughs> as Mulder from the X Files. And I thought, hang on, that's a little bit of false advertising. I'm sure he's aged in the last however many years that is thirty years. Yeah, but aged well. And clearly has developed some good writing skills, or he's always had them. I think he was a, I think he might have been a literature grad um, and then went into acting. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm not sure, but I think that might be the case. Yeah, anyway, that's not really um, germane to anything, but it's... um, Interesting nonetheless. It's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's good. So you would recommend actually his books to... Uh, as something that I might enjoy. Yeah. Um, his first one was called Miss Subways, I think. And it was, it's like a Gaiman-esque. So sort of, it's, 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 it seemed quite iterative of Neil Gaiman. Um, but it was, you know, a very good read. And then he's, um, written one recently called The Reservoir, which I'm reading now, which is really good. Yeah. When do you read, Cliff? Uh, I read every night. Yeah. So, but you know, when, when we get into bed, I, I read and, um, read basically until I fall asleep. So um, I, I'm not reading as much as I was pre Dexter um, in the you know the PD days, but I tend to still read about a novel a week. Nice. Um, and I just it's just my just distraction time, um, you know, because so much of what I do during the day is pretty dry. Reading through, like yourself, you know, reading through papers and stuff like that. Um, for me, reading novels is just a complete escape. Do you know, I, um, people, when I, you might be the same when you talk to people. So people often, when I ask them how they spend sort of part of their time and they almost apologize for watching TV at night. And, and, and I'm like, but 
that is how you unwind and relax. So yeah. like I wouldn't apologize for that because similarly, I love, I read every night and I feel a bit ripped off when I don't get the opportunity. But what I've found is because I do the dry reading and a lot of, you know, like most people, my mind is occupied by work related stuff. And um, by the time it comes around to like nine o'clock, I have tried reading novels that have been recommended in the paper or a New York Times, you know, sort of real thinking man's sort of novel. And I can't, I like always go back to my uh, travel romance uh, novels, you know, but like really light yeah. stuff, which is embarrassing to read. And I basically read the same novel again and again and again, but the characters change the, the place <laughs> that change, but it's exactly yeah, yeah, the same, yeah. totally the same. Yeah. Well, I guess at the end of the day, most novels are somewhat similar thematically. They all have, you know, similar narrative um, arcs, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Although I read all sorts of stuff. I read everything from fantasy through to sci-fi through to, you know, historical novels. Um, I recently reread The Count of Monte Cristo. Oh. Like, such a good book. And you learn so much from novels. Like, I, I, you know, through that novel, I've learned, lot, uh, you know, not a lot, but at least a little bit about the French judicial system and, you know, th little things like that that you pick up. So, yeah. Yeah. I think all I'm learning about is the landscape of France and Italy and different places within that and the food culture, actually. That's basically, and that they tend to like to drink a glass of rosé at lunch and dinner and not just dinner. And it seems to be a daily thing. I um, I got very much into that habit when I briefly lived in Argentina. Did you? Yeah. So I would um, I'd go to Spanish school in the morning, and then on the way home I'd go through the market, pick up some meat, veggies, whatever, just something light, you know, meat and bread, usually meat, bread and cheese kind of thing um, from the local market for lunch, uh, a nice little bottle of wine. So I'd have a glass of wine and some you know, cold cuts and bread, whatever, all sort of fresh stuff. Mm. Um, then I'd have a siesta, wake up, go to the cafe, have a coffee, and then go to the gym, and then sort of repeat at night. It was awesome. It was a great <laughs> that lifestyle. sounds great, actually. Oh, I don't know why I left, actually. Yeah, I know. <laughs> because you, you had bigger things to achieve and do and to offer the world, Cliff, than just your money at the market for the glass of wine possibly maybe maybe this the story is yet to be completely written however holistic performance institute how's that going great i mean i think that everyone i speak to in education or you know in any business really um they're noticing that there's a bit of a crunch on at the moment uh you know because inflation rising cost of living, all that kind of stuff. But at least I think in the field we're in, people, I hope, you know, I think I see this and I hope that it carries on, that people are becoming a little bit more focused on on health and even more than health, like um, health and happiness mm. and what's going to drive that on a day-to-day -day level um, because obviously there is a lot of uncertainty and I think people are becoming a little bit disillusioned with just – you know, being on the treadmill and doing the standard nine to five and, and really just having a work for work sake kind of mentality. I think people are really stepping outside of that, uh, wanting to do that for themselves, but also 
you know, getting involved with their own health and happiness process and then wanting to help other people to do that as well. So, um, you know, I think that's a really cool movement that might have come out of all this shambles of the last few years. Who is like, who are the, who's the cohort of Holistic Performance Institute? Like who does your courses? Because a lot of people come and ask me, like they're wanting to refresh their nutrition or they want to get some understanding or grounding or they want a completely different, like you say, like switching up of their sort of career and stuff like that. So, but these are people across the board. Is that your student as well? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, if we had to split it up, we would probably have a demographic that is a bit biased towards, say, the 25 to 45-year-old woman. Um, you know, that sort of, we, we call it, you know, in, in business, we used to call it LOHAS, the Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. So it's sort of people who are interested in health and interested in sustainability and those types of aspects. So um, we, we get a lot of crossover with personal trainers, um, people are interested in yoga, existing naturopaths or other health practitioners who want to upskill in either health coaching or nutrition. Uh, a lot of our personal trainers want to obviously upskill in sports nutrition and be able to provide more in that space. Um, and, and I guess with the different courses we now offer, whether it be between health coaching focused courses, sports nutrition or clinical nutrition, we're starting to get a, a, a wider spread as well because, you know, personal training is fairly evenly split between men and women. Uh, health coaching is still probably dominated by women more than men. Um, and nutrition is, you know, an, an interesting one because a lot of the biggest, most, you know, the most bombastic voices out there are often men. Um, but by and large, most practitioners in nutrition are women. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, and, you know, we're here talking about today, like our main topic of conversation will, of course, be around the um, female nutrition space and the courses that HPI are running, um, of which I um, have been involved in sort of developing. But actually, my first question, which is a slight tangent to that and nothing at all to do with what we were originally discussing, um, anti-diet culture. So I was on a podcast mm. with Julianne Taylor yesterday, and I can't wait to release that because you and I both know Julianne. She's amazing, and, you know, she's very um, – not only like gifted in terms of what she's able to do now with her sport, but as a nutritionist, as a um, sort of scholar, you know, she's very smart. Yeah. And we had a conversation about the anti-diet culture. And I was wondering what your, if you have any thoughts on, on it and its place in this whole health space, I guess. Oh, geez. Where do we start and finish? I mean, I've got <laughs> thoughts on that out the wazoo. Oh, share them, please. <laughs> I think... I think the anti-diet culture is, or anti-diet movement is on balance a positive one mm -hmm. Be because, you know, for so long, so much of our our media presentation was based around the way people look. And, you know, even our medical system was to a large degree, I guess, tempered by weight being such a massive focus. And that, that led obviously to people feeling victimized and, you know, shameful about the way they were. And so that played into the whole diet culture of yo-yo dieting and extreme low calorie diets. And, you know, all those things that we saw growing up in the eighties, you and I, which is probably the worst decade for it. 
And, you know, the movement against that, I think, is really important because it starts to put the focus back on where it should be, which is, you know, I believe health and happiness with happiness being the most important thing. And so if we start to remove the the overarching elements of diet culture from what we're trying to achieve, I think we can just be far more effective in it because then it goes from, you know, you, you will see this in, in clinic, right? So often people will come to us and they feel that by achieving a certain body shape, they'll be happy, but we know that's not the case. Like yeah. the pursuit of happiness should be the key thing. And then within that, we recognize that being healthy is a critical foundation for happiness. And people will seek to achieve that supposed ideal of body shape by smashing themselves with endless cardio and starving themselves with ridiculous low calorie diets, you know, none of which they'll be able to stick to. And so then we just get this horrible situation where people are feeling, you know, they're feeling shameful, they're feeling like they're victimized and they're continually just beating themselves up getting no sort of return so that's why i say on balance i think it's a really positive thing however i think it can go too far where the whole idea of being on a little d diet as compared to like a big d diet culture war is is always a negative so if you mention like a low carb diet or a keto diet anti-diet people might start attacking you and say why are you recommending diets it's like, well, I'm not recommending diets. What I'm saying is that there are structures that help people to achieve results. And I think the the idea that we can have absolute freedom is such a pervasive myth that we have in the world nowadays in so many areas, but in, in diet is one of them, right? Well, I'm just going to have complete freedom in what I do. Well, that's cool. That's your choice. And I hope that makes you happy. But the evidence we have shows that when people do that, while they might feel better in a psychosocial sense for the short to medium term their long-term health outcomes continue to decline right yeah so there needs to be some pragmatism i think any of us who have you know health conditions or who have health goals or want to be you know even just really productive or passionate or purposeful whatever it happens to be we recognize that there needs to be some structure and we need freedom within that as well and I don't think there's a problem with that. So I think we just need to be pragmatic. And one other thing that I see a lot, and I know I'm rambling here, is that um, in that world, which is supposed to free people from being victimized or shamed or bullied, there's a lot of bullying. I agree. Right? If, if I write an, a, a scientific article, a peer-reviewed journal article in, in which I mention obesity, which is a medical condition... And then I start getting people attacking me through DMs about using the word obesity because it's triggering and being ad hominem and calling me all sorts of names and stuff. That's part of the problem. That's not part of the solution. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. And you weren't rambling, by the way. Um, and your thoughts are exactly sort of what Julianne and I also spoke of. And she had such a good point as well is that whilst the intention is good, because ultimately we want people to live their best life and obviously be happy and be thriving within that um it's really difficult to have the premise of anti-diet and eat whatever you like in an environment that is set up to eat whatever you like whenever you like wherever you like yeah. foods that uh, that just trigger that feedback reward system in the brain that make you want to keep eating, you great, know? And I think point. that's, the, yeah, that's, and I, I thought so too, and that's certainly not mine. That was Julianne's, and I'm like, yes, actually, that's something which I 
completely didn't really um, sort of consider. And, and you guys will have an interesting take on that too, because you're both athletes, right? Yes. And, and so I, and not even talking about the fueling side of things, or well, that is obviously an important part of it, but you will understand because of your athletic exploit, exploits, the the necessity of actually doing certain things to achieve a greater benefit. Because yeah. if you're an athlete, like I was, you know, I used to be a weightlifter, I'm a grappler, all that kind of stuff. If I just said, you know what, I'm just going to go completely intuitively, whatever that means, because I think that's a really fraught term as well, and I'll do what I feel like in the moment, there would be no consistency in structure that would have allowed me to, you know, a- achieve championships or records or whatever. Because I just go into the gym and I probably wouldn't actually go into the gym. I'd say, oh, you know what, I'm going to miss it today. And then in terms of fueling, it's like, ah, oh, you know what, I have a tendency to just not eat, right? So I could go through the whole day without eating. And then at night, obviously the driver physiologically is going to be get sugar, get calories, get fat, get it all in one parcel. I'm probably just going to go out and buy, you know, a couple of liters of milk and a dozen donuts. If I did that every day, I'd be not in a good way. So <laughs> I, I think, you know, we, we need to obviously recognize that we can't just we can't function with this sort of vague notion of intuition, as you say, within an environment that is just replete with hyper palatable, ultra refined foods and and massive food availability all the time. And it's interesting because some people who I follow who are now in that anti-diet space are a previous authors of diet books and they've, they've, they've had a switch in how they feel about it. Um, yet, of course, like I can't help but be somewhat skeptical because they switched to a keto plan for six months to write a keto book, and now they're in the anti diet space, uh, and they're about to write an anti diet book. You know, and this is these are, um, and then prior to that, it was a sort of paleo book, and then a sugar book, and yeah, it's all selling stuff, I suppose. And and I think part of my scepticism around this particular person is that it is all actually selling stuff and she's exactly doing the same thing yet criticizing others for doing the same. So it's a little bit like what you were saying with your um, bullying or, or um, your example there. Like it's not actually different. It's just the context and the subject matter is different. Oh, exactly. And, and there's no one more zealous or, or expert than a recent convert, right? Oh, yeah. We see it with, you know, people who switch to keto and suddenly it's all keto all the time and everyone should be on it. And usually most people with a bit of experience doing something will recognize that that's not the case. You know, most people do, I think, develop a bit of pragmatism over time, although some will obviously become more and more extreme. But yeah, I mean, there's no one way to do things. And I think the key thing is you got to step away from all that labeling of, you know, diet culture versus anti-diet, all those, you know, various terms, and just think about what is going to help people in the least judgmental way to achieve health and happiness and help them live a life that is more passionate and purposeful. Mm. Because all the rest is just bullshit. None, none of the rest matters. And there, I think there are some people out there, like, you know, I would obviously at this instance mention Michelle Yandel as someone who is yes. very pragmatic in that space. And recognizes that, you know, it's more it's not more about empowered eating and taking back that power uh, and recognizing that there's no good or bad foods per se. It's all about, you know, 
balance over the long term and all those types of things. Um, utilizing a lot of the concepts that have come from, say, haze or intuitive eating, um, you know, anti-diet culture, but putting it in a framework that recognizes that, yeah, you still need to actually do certain things for health. Yeah, no, I like that. And there's also um, Michelle Martangi. Um, oh, yeah, same, yeah. Yeah, she, I, I would absolutely put her in that space as well. And just the the idea that or the the need for focusing on work that might not necessarily be following a diet, uh, but it's actually what do you need to do to make yourself feel differently or or change the narrative or make yeah. whatever you do a positive experience rather than this continual punishment. And I think that this is where the anti-diet uh, sort of culture sort of comes from is the idea that people have been punishing themselves with diet. And I, and I absolutely agree. You know, there are so many people who – do things based in sort of deprivation uh, because of that, you know, sort of yeah. self-punishment story. We've probably all done it. And, you know, although we think about it, we often frame it as a, a female issue. Mm. And I think there are differences. I'm not going to say there's not. But, you know, uh, people like Eric and I, Eric Helms and I have talked about this before in seminars and, and all sorts is that we both consider that we probably had um, not eating disorders, but we were certainly disordered eating yeah. through a large part of our competitive careers because we were practically starving ourselves to remain ripped. And it wasn't healthy because we were feeling, you know, stressed and anxious and not sleeping well and, you know, all these effects. And it does come from a lot of the same impetus, I guess. Now, I, I think one of the the benefits of being a dude in this respect, and as part of that male privilege, is that we're not so victimized or shamed by it. Because it's more acceptable for a guy to become, you know, a little bit heavier and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also what that leads to, I think, is some degree of pragmatism. Maybe it's not pragmatism, but there's just le because there is less of that victimization, I think there can be a little bit more of just letting it go. And, and that's why I don't think there is ever one... There's no one particular right way to do things. And I, and, I, and when I'm talking about this, I often use the example of I, I tend to stay away from the word cheat because I think that when we when we use the, terming, uh, the, the framing cheat, a lot of people will then, that becomes an off-on switch. You know, I've cheated on my diet, therefore it's broken or I've done something bad. You know, it becomes a negative and sort of self-victimizing cycle. However, a student of mine several years ago, when I was mentioning the, the importance of framing, said, well, in my case, it, that's, that's completely not the case. I loved the word cheat, and it was because she came from a tech and gaming background in which a cheat is something that helps you to get a greater benefit, right? You like so it's like a hack. Exactly, and it's, it's synonymous with that. So she loved the word cheat because for her it had positive connotations. And I think we need to remember that because sometimes, like I'll often, I might look at myself occasionally in the mirror and say, ah, oh, I'm getting a bit fat. And that can be really triggering for some people because mm. for them to, to approach it that way would be really negative. But for me, it's just a call to action. It's like, ah, oh, you know what, I'm getting a bit fat, but better tighten up just a little bit because, not because I'm worried so much about the way I look, but I know that if I start to put on body fat you know, adipokine-driven inflammation that worsens my mental health, you know, that might trigger some bipolar stuff and it might worsen my autoimmune conditions. Yeah. So I, I just know that it's a physical expression of poorer health for me, and I'm only talking about my ex experience here, 
that will um, not help my health and happiness in the medium to long term. So it's just like a call to action. Okay, I'm going to get back on track. But I'm I'm quite comfortable using those terms, whereas I know that for a lot of people that would be super triggering. Um, but it's a good example that there's no like right, wrong. It's not always black and white. You know, there's not one thing that is the, the correct way for everybody. No, I appreciate that, Cliff. And I am going to ask you a little bit about that in a minute. But I'll, what I found when I gained 12 kilos in 2016, like so a significant amount of weight for someone of my size, Um it was to the detriment of my mental health. So I can sort of appreciate what, you know, like that there, there has to be a balance between that physical health and also your mental health and, and finding that balance is, I think, uh, important for, and it's important to uh, think about those things as well. Yeah, absolutely. How would you tighten up your diet actually? Like, People often want to hear it from the experts what they do. They probably know what you might recommend people do, but what do you do yourself to help sort of tighten things up? That's a really good question because I think for me it's mostly around consistency. And although I often, in the first instance, will try and teach people about food quality and you know eating meals rather than snacks, eating until they're full, things like that, um, eating really good quality food, you know, those types of things that help people to auto-regulate. For me, that's part of it. But the biggest part is as like a linchpin action is to be consistent with my eating because I tend to not eat enough. And then when I don't eat for a long period of time, I'm much more likely to choose foods that if I choose them too often are not going to be good for me. So for me, it's really about making sure that I have, you know, a protein shake, with fish oil and greens in the morning, um, making sure I have you know a lot of protein and veggies at lunch and then the same at dinner. And if I'm really focusing on, even if it's just those three things, I know that the rest is going to fall into line pretty well. But if, for example, I, I miss that shake in the morning and just load up on coffee, then I probably won't have lunch. And then at nighttime, I'll have a good dinner, but afterwards I'll probably be craving more because my body you know, just simply hasn't had enough calories. And what I tend to go for then is, you know, sweeter stuff, cookies and Mm. Snickers bars and that kind of stuff, which I would tend to only have usually on one, maybe two nights of a week as as treats, right? And it's within the constraints of a structure that works really well for me. Um, But if I allow that then to bleed out because my consistency hasn't been better, then that's when things start to go south and I start to feel um, pretty crappy. (laughs) Yeah. And do you find it hard being consistent or actually like, so how often might that happen now for you compared to say 10 years ago or whatever? It, It usually happens for a period of weeks, maybe once every six to 12 months, you know, and, and I'll recognize that I'm starting to feel worse. You know, my joints are sore. I'm having more, um, you know, mood ups and downs rather than being a little bit more consistent. Um, I might find that my gastrointestinal stuff is, is worsening, um, obviously because of the Crohn's disease. And so I just notice those triggers starting to come up, which in some respects is probably lucky, right? For a lot of people, if they didn't have that and they just progressively started feeling worse and worse day by day, they wouldn't necessarily realize it. And that's one of the things we often don't realize how poor we feel because it's been a slow progression. Um, and so sometimes we need to take these health condition triggers as almost being a blessing because they're telling us, you know, sort your shit out. 
Yeah, 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 literally. Um, it's <laughs> yeah. interesting that uh, what you say about um, having the triggers to sort of tell, like it, it takes some time to notice that you're not feeling so good. And do you know what I find with women? And this is on the energy front, for example, which might be quite a good segue into talking about the female athlete on just the female nutrition course, is that clinically speaking, when I ask a woman how she's feeling in terms of energy, it's really difficult for her to, for, for a lot of women to recognize when the energy is poor because actually they just have to get on and do stuff. So be it work, train, look after a household, raise a toddler, take the kids everywhere. Like it's almost like they haven't really thought about the energy because they don't have the luxury of thinking about their energy. Yeah, absolutely. And also our energy is a flux around a point, right? So we have a baseline and then we either feel poorer or better based on that sort of baseline, but often people's baseline is lower than what it could be. And so I, I haven't done this for a long time, but I used to in clinic, I used to often just ask people on a scale of sort of one to 10, just overall, how do you feel like snapshot? And I'd sort of snap my fingers and get them to just give me a real instinctive answer. And usually people would say, because obviously they're coming in to see me for a reason, they would usually be lower than what they wanted, but they'd often say something like, oh, I'm about a six, you know, and I really want to be like a nine or a 10. But then what would often happen is a month or two later when they came back in, I'd say, well, how do you feel now? And they say, oh, you know what? I'm probably about a seven or an eight. But I realized before I wasn't a six, I was like a three or four. Yeah. Because they just didn't realize how different they could feel. But once they start to progress, they realize that what they previously thought might have been a nine or a 10 is actually a massive improvement, but it's still not where they could be because they still know that they could improve even more. Yeah. I see this with everyone, but I certainly see it a lot with women. I think a lot of the reason for that is either under under fueling or in the presence of overfueling under nutrition. Yes. And I think just due to the nature of the the types of restrictions that women are more likely to put themselves through as compared to men, perhaps we see that a little bit more. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned the uh, in both of those um aspects because I think that the over the overfueling under nutrition can occur for um, athletes who are focusing on the wrong foods to get to sort of fuel their sessions and their day because they're needing to uh, replenish their you know muscle carbohydrate stores and they know that they need to have uh, x number of grams of uh, carbohydrate in order to do that so I think that's that's one aspect but I also think another aspect of that overnutrition under fueling is they go in not fueling well so under eating but then more than making up for it at the end of the day and I think that's where a lot of that over new uh, over fueling and under nutrition sort of comes from as well and and that's yeah absolutely that's, and that's one of the reasons why I've been really conflicted about so much of the blowback against the CrossFit nutrition statement they put out, which basically said to avoid added sugars. Yeah. And a lot of people in the nutrition space have come out and said, that's ridiculous. You can't completely avoid them and all this kind of stuff. And I agree with that to some degree, but by the same token, I think anyone should po probably be striving to eat mostly unrefined foods um, you know, natural, unrefined foods where possible, just because they're more likely to be nutrient replete if they do that. 
Sure, if on top of that they have a little bit of treat food, I don't care because I've done that in the past. You know, when I was boxing, I would make sure I ate all my meals, but at the end of the day, I'd often be so hungry, I'd have some Snickers bars and milk, whatever, because I needed the extra calories, but I knew at least I was nutrient replete. I think the point you're making, which I agree with 100%, is that if you're not nutrient replete across the board, and then you're making up for those additional calories with a lot of ultra-refined, hyperpalatable food that is low in relative like micronutrient density, that could potentially be an issue. And I've seen that a lot in, in my recent work, particularly around uh, long COVID, COVID vaccination adverse events, um, autoimmune conditions. Basically, everyone that I see, whether or not they're eating a healthy diet, and most of them actually are eating an ostensibly healthy diet they're not getting enough of all of the essential micronutrients from their diet. And in some cases, like the the recent case study I just published, you look across the board, the things that these people weren't getting, it just blows your mind. They're not getting enough um, magnesium, zinc, potassium, phosphorus, calcium, iron, B1, 3, 5, 6, 12, enough protein, enough omega-3 fats. It's like it's so across the board. But if you just eyeballed their diet, you'd say, oh, it looks pretty healthy. Yeah. But once you start to analyze it, you realize that, hey, these people are undernourished and so many people are. And it fits with the research we have now, right, from a range of conditions, but also with respect to COVID, that uh, undernourishment and malnutrition are massive cofactors. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, because similar to you, I looked, I didn't um, publish a case study or anything like that. So different to you, but I was looking at research <laughs> in and around that sort of micronutrient and relationship between severity of outcomes, the potential for long COVID and things like that. And whilst I know I'll park long COVID because I, as I understand it, there are different types of long COVID, it manifests differently, but within that sort of, uh, severity of illness, it does appear that some really basic nutrients are related. So, and I'm sure that you you would have written about, you know, vitamin D or selenium or yep. omega-3s is one which can really help. And, um, and protein. And protein, totally, which is one which we know is like across the board for most people, a difficult, for whatever reason, a difficult nutrient to um to be sufficient in. and would you say for in your experience would that be more prevalent in women a hundred percent yeah actually I, like i'd it, agree just yeah and i would say that men do struggle or don't think about it as much but men eat more food and when you eat more food your ability to get more nutrients by default is probably increased you know yeah. like almost like you don't think about protein but because you eat such a variety of food you're gonna get it anyway whereas women are their low protein eaters they're low eaters in the morning and this is particularly I see this in a lot of my female athletes as well uh, and more so probably uh, and then they're mindful of portions of food in and around that protein food and they're more likely to eat less of it because they're also mindful of those public health messages that tell you you need to eat less protein and tell you you yeah. need to avoid certain foods. So I think that they're more likely to um, experience that. Well, one thing that we didn't or that I didn't publish in these case studies is it was an observation, but because it was, it was an observation that I couldn't 
really support quantitatively per se was that a lot of people um, who are coming to me, whether it be for COVID, long COVID or other sort of things at the moment, they're also seeking to follow a plant-based diet or moving towards that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, given that we see a lot of those those micronutrient insufficiencies we're seeing are fairly abundant in meat, like zinc and preformed vitamin A in particular, you know, things like that. I wonder if that's potentially a factor too. And I think there is a, from what I've seen, I mean, there's a, a greater prevalence of veganism within women, for example, or the yeah. desire to move towards that. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of influence in that space. You know, there are a, a lot of, and good on them, you know, healthy, fit, active vegan influences and all power to them. But people need to be aware that when you cut out, here's a funny one, right? When you cut out an entire food group, there are potential ramifications from it. Now, I might be a, a bit at risk here because a lot of people will will talk about that with respect solely to like keto or low-carb diets. Why are you cutting out whole food groups? But then they won't have the same criticism for people who pursue a plant-based diet. Yeah. But but if anything, that's going to be more impactful, right? Because there are certain things you just can't get from plant foods. Yeah. And then when you go low carb, it's not necessarily that that's no carb, you know, and I think that's the exactly. other. So you're not, you're not pulling out an entire macronutrient. You are reducing down where you get your nutrients from, but you're actually just by default making it a more nutrient dense diet because the carbs we focus on tend to be the, when we focus on removing tend to be those refined carbohydrates. Yeah, I think there's a real there's a real problem there in that w- if we assume that, for example, a low carb diet is less than fifty grams of carbs a day, I can completely buy the idea that it's pretty detrimental to performance. Not not for everyone, but you know across the board. But if we consider that we might say a low carb diet or a keto diet, let's say, is less than ten percent of calories from carbs that might be a whole different picture because then if you're eating, you know, 4,000 calories, then it's a hundred grams of carbs. It's double the amount. Whether that changes the context enough for people who knows who cares, but it certainly is a big difference. And so I think one person's low carb or one person's keto, low carb's a whole different story altogether, obviously, because then it might be that someone's having 200 or more grams of carbs in a day and still be functionally low carb. Um, that that does change the conversation a lot. And so what I often say to people who are very avidly anti is not that I'm pro low carb per se, it's that I'm pro the application of it if it works for someone. And one person's low carb is not another person's low carb. Yeah. So let's I, all I, get along. <laughs> let's all get along. Exactly. And, you know, historically in clinical studies, um, actually, there's a ton of research in women. And if you look, actually look across nutrition research, women make up the majority of the populations that are studied in a, in a range of different areas. I wanted but to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. Because so often we hear the narrative that women aren't studied. And I agree with that across the board. And we, we also need to do a better job of studying women. Like I was on a panel in Aussie where a, a woman – from the Australian Dietetic Association said, oh, we don't, we don't study women because it's too difficult because they have menstrual cycles and things. And I, I said straight after that, we were on a panel together, I said, that's not good enough. 
Like that that's a shitty thing to say and it's a shitty thing to do. But that has happened. But to your point, if we look at nutrition research, so much of it is, especially because a lot of it's based on weight loss, right? So many of the cohorts we see are women with, uh, with overweight or obesity, women with diabetes or metabolic syndrome. And even the research that you and I have done, how, how many of our participants are women? Like it's, it's always skewed female because women want to be involved and find things that work for them. Mm. And I think it's just when you come to the sports nutrition literature where you've got the smaller studies, where there's a smaller budget, that's that's where the research hasn't been done because, quote, unquote, it's too hard on the menstrual, sort of aligning menstrual cycle, even thinking about the menstrual cycle. And a lot of the research that has been done has been like, well, if you're on the oral contraceptive pill, awesome, we'll take you. Otherwise, no, or that, or they delineate between OCP versus no OCP. Not really given, given much um, sort of consideration to what phase of the menstrual cycle the other women are on. So we we often all play into the trope, and we use it as sort of marketing material, tongue in cheek, that women aren't just small men. And I I agree with that because I think one of the main reasons I agree with that is because women aren't just small men because women are women are men are men but we're all humans right and i wanted to ask you about that like what are the considering we're all homo sapiens and we share the identical genetic material what are the major differences then and and how does that impact the the differences in say nutrition that women should follow or or training that women should follow yeah yeah so if we just think in we sort of step back from the athletic uh, population and just think in general, women are, because of the menstrual cycle and the changes in their hormone profile, both uh, within a month or within that sort of, you know, I say month, you know, that's quite a unicorn approach, if you like, to the menstrual cycle because that might vary from 21 to 35 days. Um, So you get the the changes in hormones across a month. You, You also get changes across the life cycle. And, you know, at varying points across that time, women will have different outcomes depending on what you're sort of looking at because of those changes. So uh, sleep is one which is really interesting. So women are much more likely to experience sleep disturbances, both in sort of puberty time, so when they're actually just, you know, developing, so adolescent um, coming into adulthood. Also within the luteal phase, it might be that there's this uh, increased histamine response because of estrogen, or there's the sudden drop of progesterone once your menstrual cycle starts at day zero, or postmenopausal, just a change in, again, um, the loss of progesterone can cause, or the fluctuating estrogen as we head into sort of perimenopause, that can all change that sort of sleep cycle. So I think we can absolutely say that sleep is one lifestyle factor which is impacted on by the different hormone profile between men and women. Um, but does, and- that, does that explain some... I'm just thinking out loud here. Does that explain some of the variability we see through the cycle in like cravings? Because obviously sleep is the biggest impactor probably in like um, ad libitum snack craving or sugar craving, things like that. 
Yeah, that's, that's, that's such a great question, actually, Cliff. So I think it could be a couple of things. So yes, sleep could be one of those things. So whenever you are sleep deprived, you are slightly more insulin resistant, which actually in the luteal phase, we are slightly more insulin resistant anyway. Hmm. We can't access glycogen stores as much. And I, and I see that reported as we are slightly more insulin resistant. I don't know to what extent it sort of changes things, but we can't use carbs the same way that we can in the follicular phase, for example. But also in the luteal phase, there are reports of a higher energy expenditure. Now, that might range from 85 kilojoules to, you know, 250 kilojoules. So, don't so think massive amounts. <laughs> exactly, massive amounts. And actually, in fact, there are other studies which show like quite a lot, like maybe 250, 300 calories. So maybe right, that okay. chain, but that's, again, it's it's an average, you know, the, the amounts you see are averages often reported. And it's, for some women, there's no change in energy expenditure. For some, there is a large change. So, um, but that too can increase in um might explain the increase in cravings because energy needs are greater. So you just want more food. So is there any truth to that sort of narrative out there that women should train differently or eat differently at different stages of the menstrual cycle? Uh, so if by truth you mean research truth, then I would say currently there is no research to suggest there is a, there, that things need to be changed according to your menstrual cycle. Right. On balance, so if you look at the literature, I think what the real problem with the literature is actually that there isn't enough. Right. You know, like okay. as we said, women in that clinical sort of sports nutrition performance space are understudied. So we can't definitively say one way or the other. The mechanisms are there though, like the mechanisms for which performance might be impacted. So there might be a change in levels of inflammation. There might be a change in ability to recover or our ability to access glycogen for energy. So these things are real. And the psychosomatic or the psychological aspect of having a menstrual cycle for some women might be enough as well to change performance. So thinking that your period's going to impact negatively on your performance could actually change the outcome of your performance as well. So I don't think that we should undervalue that aspect as well. Aside from the literature, though, I think any woman that has symptoms in and around her cycle is undoubtedly going to experience differences in performance actually because for some women you know sort tender breasts bloating back pain that will change functionally how mm. your body moves uh levels of inflammation um weight gain that some women experience water retention like that's going to change how a woman sort of is able to complete training and, and perform. So I think like women are not small men, yes, but we are same species, yes. I think everyone is an individual. Right, yeah. And that's so what I'm what I'm getting from you is that there are differences and they can yeah. result in, you know, differences in performance outcomes. It might result in differences in the way that someone maybe wants to eat. Um, but there's a lot of individual variability. 
And so I guess at that point, it comes down to looking at the individual and and determining what's best for that individual in that phase of cycle, rather than having blanket recommendations for, you know, you are a woman at this stage, therefore you should eat this way and train this way. Yes, that is what I, that is what I think. I mean, there are studies to show that performance might be enhanced for certain, you know, strength and power in and around your follicular phase might be better. You know, like I see that, I, I see research that might suggest that small, albeit small studies, um, equally uh, doing long bouts of aerobic activity during your follicular phase might be easier in that um, earlier part of your menstrual cycle compared to the, the latter part. Right. Because of your ability to access glycogen. However, I think that's another thing that we need to sort of talk about as well as the sort of carb recommendations for women based on their cycle. Tell me about it, because <laughs> I don't know about this stuff. You're the expert. Yeah, <laughs> and actually, all I would say is is that you often hear that women need more carbs in the luteal phase because they're not able to access the glycogen stores, so they need to sort of take on board that exogenous carbohydrate. And I guess my my thinking is, if you can't access your glycogen as well, then I think that then pushes the case to become better fat adapted. So you're not just relying on glycogen for performance because if a woman is experiencing um, changes in how she feels in in her luteal phase and, and it results in extra cravings and maybe a bit of bloating or water retention, I don't think having more carbs in that instance is actually going to make her feel better. I think in fact, if anything, it might just make her feel a bit worse. That's a great point. One thing that comes to mind is I wonder what the mechanism or the, the underlying, not mechanism, but the underlying reason for that insulin resistance is, because I would assume, you know, based on what we know about other things, it would be an adaptive response to preserve glucose for other necessary requirements, whether that be, you know, particular hormone um, creation or particular tissue requiring extra fuel. Um, similar to what we see with low carb diets, where there's that situation of um, benevolent pseudo diabetes, right? We're on a low carb diet, tissue will become more insulin resistant to preserve uh, greater glucose availability for the central nervous system. Yeah, it's not a bad thing; it's a benign thing that is an adaptive mechanism that has benefits. So you know, it would be like saying that because there is transient insulin resistance which resolves like that as soon as someone starts eating carbs again after being on a low carb diet because there's that transient insulin resistance that everyone on a low carb diet should switch to a high carb diet like yeah that that ignores that there's other outcomes that we could achieve from it yeah i agree and i wonder and this is is it that you're preparing your body for for pregnancy you know after ovulation like that's the you know, that's going to be the time right, with which yeah. you're either going to get pregnant or not. So I wonder whether there's that because that is that is what I, that is one thing that comes to mind. But, you know, estrogen is insulin sensitizing and that rises to a peak in ovulation and then it drops. So I wonder whether it really is insulin resistance per se. And I don't and maybe it isn't. Maybe it's actually just there's less of that slightly less of that sort of insulin sensitizing estrogen around. Right, yeah, yeah. So just a natural consequence of cycle, maybe. Yeah, 
yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wonder whether that's it. But it's hard to make blanket recommendations on any nutrition front, isn't it? So I, so I don't. That's not different for women, actually. Like you know, if you ha- there are certainly things which help uh, resolve some of those premenstrual sy- symptoms that women experience, much like there is definitely. Uh, some key strategies for a woman in perimenopause to make her feel better. And so women in that space, but I think it's very difficult to set the dietary guidelines. You can't just say, these are the five things that are going to help everyone. So, yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And so I guess a lot of the common tropes that are around that are really to do with, I think treating women as if their hormonal balance is some sort of precious glass thing that can be shattered, you know, so easily. Mm. A lot of these tropes that are around, like women shouldn't do high intensity interval training. Um, they shouldn't fast. They shouldn't follow a low carb diet. That's, I mean, from our previous discussions, I would gather that that's probably not, I mean, it's not accurate because it's not applicable to all women or even most women. It just depends on the instance, right? Yeah, it does. And in fact, you know, like when I was writing the course for the female athlete nutrition module and just the female nutrition module, you know, what are the, you know, in the literature, it does say that women have higher uh, morning cortisol, for example, compared to men. And I think that's where the recommendation comes for women should not fast and should not um, do high intensity training fasted, particularly because that's just going to spike cortisol even higher. However, you know, I also spoke to Dr. Carrie Jones on a previous episode of Wikipedia, and she is or was the medical director at Dutch. So Dutch is the company that do the urine analysis of cortisol levels, which are uh, much more representative of cortisol patterns and actual cortisol because it's the metabolized cortisol in the urine and not the 3% you might find in the, the bloodstream. And she said she's seen thousands and thousands of samples and has never seen a difference between men and women in terms of their cortisol in the morning. So again, what is this evidence-based, you know, quote-unquote evidence-based sort of premise that women have higher cortisol? Well, actually, clinically speaking, that's not what we see. Might have been what we saw in those small studies that are now relied upon to sort of... uh, underpin some of the recommendations you hear but it's not what people see in practice a lot of the time and i guess even if there is a slightly higher level of morning waking cortisol if that were consistent across women that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing because what's important is the the change that's elicited right so if you have something that results in consistent higher cortisol that would potentially be problematic but with uh, fasting, for example, and I'm not advocating that women fast. I'm not advocating that women are on a low-carb diet. What I'm advocating is that people choose a diet that's most appropriate for their health. But yeah. in the research we have on fasting, for example, we see that, yes, there are increases in cortisol and other stress hormones, but they typically uh, that's typically a transient change that resolves within about two weeks. So once people are adapted to fasting, there's no impact on stress hormones. So from my point of view, it's about finding, it's about horses for courses, right? Because we also see in the research, we see really good results from fasting and low carb for women. 
but we need to look at what those studies are and what they were analyzed, what, what, what their design was, what, what they were looking at. And they're typically studies on people, women with obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, who, you know, have large amounts of body fat typically. And so fasting and or low carb is going to help them to correct an inappropriate energy balance. So in those cases, you know, why wouldn't it be effective? However, I completely get, and I've obviously advocated for this as you have, that where people are under fuel, there's a lot are, maybe fasting and low carb are inappropriate because they're potentially going to drive that auto-regulation of energy down and in some cases way down. So it's going to further exacerbate that problem of underfueling. Yeah, and that's and that's really my premise for a lot of what I say on social media and that is that it's that it's not fasting per se that's the issue. It's the inappropriate use of fasting or the inability to refuel after the fast that really sort of does people, not just women, but people in when it comes to fasting or low carb and and that kind of thing. It's the magic, right? Yes. Fasting and low carb are magic. They do all these amazing (laughs) things. And it's like, no, no, they actually don't. Really, like anything else, they help people to auto-regulate energy. Yeah. Because if you look at all markers across the board for fasting, for example, and I've looked, you know, I've looked into this a lot, read basically every study that's been done. If we look at fasting and we look at all measures, all outcomes, when the energy intake is the same, there's basically no difference at all except for one marker potentially. There's probably lower IGF-1 from fasting. Right. Outside of that, that everything's the same. And with that, is it meaningfully lower or just significant? Good question. I'm not sure. I, I know that it's significant. I'm not sure whether it's highly meaningful, but it's it's of interest at least for, say, cancer yeah. treatment. That's the yeah, only yeah, thing yeah. I can really think of which we would even worry about, you know, moderate changes in IGF-1. Yeah, yeah. And maybe for some things, you know, uh, like optimizing muscle gain, you might say, well, it's the other way. You You probably don't want a reduction in IGF-1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's so interesting. And, you know, if we think, if we come back to important points for people to consider when it comes to just, you know, how females might differ from males and in that sort of performance space and things like that, um, obviously we have, quote unquote, a report card, you know, every month you get your menstrual cycle if you're cycling naturally, because obviously on an oral contraceptive pill you don't have a period um then that's a pretty good first indicator that things might be going awry with what you're doing from a nutrition standpoint right but it's not the only one because there are plenty of examples of women who every 28 days have a robust menstrual cycle yet are under fueling uh, have mood issues sleep issues are not able to recover and there are other signs of the sort of relative energy deficiency which aren't um which actually don't impact their menstrual cycle either so i think there is wide variation into how robust a woman's menstrual sort of those hormone signals are as well and you mentioned relative energy deficiency so we're talking there about that idea of under fueling and it's characterized as red s or that relative energy deficiency syndrome um, is it correct that women, there's a greater prevalence of that in women? 
Yes, it is correct. There's a greater prevalence. Um, and I think the threshold might be a little bit higher as well. Right. As far as we, as far as we know. So in, for example, you know, there, there are numbers sort of thrown out there that, um, anything under 30 calories per kilogram of lean body mass would be considered, uh, low energy availability and I believe that's where the literature is on that um, uh, in that realm and with men it's actually um, might be 20 calories per kg of lean body mass Um, I might be a little bit out by five calories on on the men one Uh, but what I would say is that some of the experts have sort of critiqued the literature around energy availability and said you know what these numbers are a, a good start but they shouldn't be gospel because again, everyone is different. And I think that's, but that's the same with any concept, any um, sort of parameter of nutrition. It, very few things are gospel, I think. I think that individual variation will always play a part in how meaningful they are to the individual. Oh, no, no doubt. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that uh, really comes across, I think, in your course is that it's... The, the thing I love, the things I love about your course is that it's it's based consummately on the research, but it's pragmatically looking at how that applies to individuals. So it's not you know making these blanket statements. It's not pulling you know things out of nowhere um, or inappropriately a- applying the science. Because you know one of the things that's really annoyed me in the past is that studies are referenced to support ideas, but if you actually read the study, it doesn't support that idea, you know? And so I think we need to be very careful about what we're looking at and recognize that, Hey, there's, there's a lot of individual variability. Um, and also that there are some very important factors that affect people full stop. Um, but you know, probably do affect women with a far greater prevalence, like that idea of underfueling undernourishment. And so we really need to be aware of that, um, and make sure that, you know, because, you and I will both see people all the time who come in eating, you know, 900, 1100, 1200 calories a day. And I would say for most, with the odd exception for most people, that's just drastically low. It is. And interesting, actually, because Julian and I had this conversation too, is that, but then you see people on social media saying it's never appropriate to eat 1200 calories. And of well, course it for is. The majority, <laughs> yeah. Is he, and it's, so again, it's just, it's that appreciation for, for nuance. And what I will say from a female perspective is that the older you get, you don't have to, like, like this is another narrative I see is that if you're in perimenopause or menopause, you absolutely must not be low carb. Actually, as you head into perimenopause and menopause, we are more insulin resistant. We are at greater risk of dementia and and subsequent sort of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's cognitive decline isn't actually subsequent to dementia. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and in part, we fare better on a lower carb approach yeah. because of that. And that, and this is true, I think, of athletes as well. You know, like I don't think it's just this, the sedentary or the general population that would benefit from that. Because I see, you know, female athletes, menopause, you shouldn't, be low carb and I just don't know that that's true yeah I agree 100% uh, and I think that again we need to go back to what what are we actually talking about like yeah w- what is that relative to what you're doing 
you know, people could look at me and say, well, you're an athlete, you should be high carb. But the thing is, I don't actually expend that much energy. I lift some heavy things, you know, most days. And I wrestle with other men two or three times a week. But overall, my expenditure is not that high. And if I were having eight grams per kilo of carbs, I would just get fat. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, you know, I've seen more recently recommendations for women to be up on sort of seven to eight grams of carbs per kg body weight uh, per day. And I, I think for a lot of women, that is a significant amount of carbohydrate to be eating um, with the ability to get other nutrients in. So it's because it's always opportunity costs, I See, think. I've never understood gram per kilo recommendations with respect to carbohydrate because I've always thought that, you know, you, you've known my approach that I've had since the late 90s is that you optimize protein based on grams per kilo and then provide a threshold of fat appropriate to the person and usually I would prescribe no less than say 25% calories from fat, but then the rest surely can be made up from carbohydrate. And that kind of takes care of the problem because then if if you feel that the person would benefit from a higher carb diet, then 25% calories coming from fat, maybe you know 1.5 to 2 grams of protein per kilo body weight, and then the rest, carbohydrate, if they're exercising a lot, there's going to be more carbs if they're not exercising so much their relative calorie requirements going to be lower and therefore they'll be eating fewer carbohydrates Um, if they have metabolic disorder and it's appropriate for them psychosocially well then maybe they benefit from a more moderate or lower carb approach you know it is really courses for courses and i don't see that differing too much between men and women except for a couple of instances like um during conception or pregnancy where i do think that women do benefit from skewing towards moderate to higher carb and, you know, obviously higher energy intakes just to make sure that their energy replete. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, I, yeah, I find it interesting as well. It's fascinating stuff. And so you have your women's health and performance courses now, both available at HPI. Yes. So who are those courses mostly geared towards, Mick? Are they for practitioners, athletes, general population, or all of the above? <laughs> yeah, I actually you know what? I, I, I wonder if you agree with me, but I feel like they're pitched actually to suit a, a larger audience. Like I, I tend to add science in and add explanatory notes. Um, I think it's helpful for an athlete or an interested sort of female individual to understand, you know, if if she's interested in knowing a bit more about how things change across the life cycle or how, how, where the science is at with regards to the performance perspective, then I think that anyone can really go in and, and get a lot from the course. I do think from a clinician perspective, I do add some clinician notes as well in the, the workbooks and have a few tips, which, hey, look, clinicians may be super all over this stuff anyway, but if it is new to you and particularly in that performance uh, realm, then I think that they could also benefit from from doing the course. And a lot of people who have done it have reached out to say that they really uh, got a lot from it, which was great. Yeah, our feedback across the board has been fantastic. And I think that's because what people are often missing is a synthesis of those various disparate ideas out there 
but a synthesis of those based on the evidence, but then with that practical translation. I think, you know, one of the things that I think you do better than most people in the industry is translating those concepts into what people can actually do. And so that's where I think a lot of people are missing. And because there's that translation there, I think it works really well for general people just wanting to be healthier, athletes or practitioners. I think people can get a, a huge amount out of it. Yeah, awesome. Sweet, Cliff. Thanks, Mickey. Well, that was great. So we, we kicked off with David Duchovny and uh, <laughs> we ended up ended with, with, <laughs> with Mickey Bulladin. <laughs> and that's, hey, what, what a great pairing. <laughs> I know. I hope, hope Baz isn't too I, um, I would have thought so back in 1994 when I got my Beefy Tea t-shirt printed with a picture of Mulder and Scully on the front. I, I had this for 10 years, <laughs> 15 years, and then I had written on the back, the truth is out there. Oh, my God. I just loved it you, so much. You were so cool, Mickey. I was so cool. <laughs> and, in fact, I knew I wasn't very cool and I didn't care. I'm like, no, I love this man and this show so much. I am here for it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Clifford, um, now where can we find these courses? These courses can be found at the Holistic Performance Institute, which is holisticperformance.institute. Perfect. And also, just to remind people who are listening to this on Wikipedia, um, your, you mentioned a case study that you'd just published. Where can we find your writing? Is it at the same place or is it on your personal website? Uh, so that particular case study is published has been published at our um, institute journal. So that's the Journal of Holistic Performance, um, which you can find going from the Holistic Performance Institute link or you can find it directly at holisticperformance.org. Great, Cliff. Well, hey, thanks so much for chatting to me. Thanks for chatting with me, Mickey. And uh, I love doing this podcast. We'll I know, I love it too. It's so good. Boom, in the bag. See you later. Thanks, Mick. Alrighty. Always a wealth of information. Always so great to chat to Cliff. I just absolutely love it. And um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Next week on the podcast, I speak to Nicole Jardim from The Period Party, and we talk again about women's health, about what to expect with your menstrual cycle, and a whole host of other things. So look out for that one. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, or jump on my website, mickeywillardin.com, Pick yourself up a protein ebook, book a consult one on one with me, or sign up to any number of my meal plans. Where, in addition to my weekly email, you get access to me 24 7, access to member only Facebook Lives, and you also get the opportunity to pick my brain on anything nutrition related, in addition to over 900 recipes that are frequently updated and if you purchase a meal plan option, a 28-day meal plan to help you meet your nutrition-related goals. All right, team, you have a fab week, and we'll speak soon. See you later.